This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. I'm excited to preach. We are going to be in the book of Acts. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand nice and high. And we're going to have some dashing young man coming from the sides who will hand you a Bible. Don't be shy. Raise your hands nice and high. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep it. Otherwise, if you have one, you just forgot it today, just leave it on the seat on your way out. We are going to be at the very end of Acts chapter 15, verse 36, and we're going to go all the way through Acts chapter 16, verse 5. And if you're taking notes, the title of the message is Tensions and Transitions. And I've given it... uh, I've given it a subtitle after uh, I've been in it and studying, and my subtitle that I assigned to this sermon is The Great and Glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, it's very warm up here, so I'm going to whip out my rag, but this is not my preaching rag. It's just because it's hot up here, so I don't know why I announced that to all of you. I just, you know, just wanted you to know. I'm excited. I'm excited to preach today. So, Like I do before um, every sermon that I preach, I want to encourage you to do one thing, and that's to lay aside any distractions, because there are going to be distractions, and try to focus on the Word of God. The passages that we're going to talk about today are kind of those in-between verses that if you're doing your personal one-on-one Bible study time, you normally kind of skip over or go over really quickly as you get to like the meatier parts, the more important parts of scripture. And when you do that, you you or I, we may just uh, tend to miss the grandness of the gospel that's put on display in, in these passages. And I don't want us to miss that. So my challenge before I start is choose to be in awe of God's word today and don't let uh, distractions overcome you um, because they will be there. So um, let's recap. I want to talk about Josh's, Josh's, I always struggle with that, Josh's message last week. He talked about Paul and Barnabas, and Paul and Barnabas are going all throughout the world, and they're preaching the gospel, and Gentiles, Gentiles are non-Jewish people, are being saved. Now, for the Jews, this is a whole new thing because in their mind, they are the elect and chosen people of God. And so for the gospel to be preached out, the spirit to fall on Gentiles was kind of a new thing for them. And they were accepting it, right? Jewish Christians were happy about it, like Paul and Barnabas, who were completely 100% Jewish. They were preaching the gospel. They saw Gentiles converted, and they were telling everyone about it. And then they get to Jerusalem. And all the elders and all the apostles, they convene at a council in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are there, and they're telling them all about the work of the gospel and all the things that God is doing in Gentile believers, that they're just coming to the faith in droves. And everyone's excited about it. But then a man stands up, a member of the party of the Pharisees. He's a believer, but he's part of the Pharisee group as well. And he stands up and he says, look, it's good. It's a good thing what God is doing in the Gentiles. It's good that he's saving them and that they are now part of the children of God. But they've got to get circumcised. And at that point, when this man mentioned that, all of a sudden there's a heated debate and everyone starts arguing about whether the Gentiles should be circumcised or should they not be circumcised. And it's just going back and forth and everyone's in a ruckus. Now, when I first read this, I'm thinking, 
who cares who's circumcised or who's not circumcised? Why is that even a big deal? Um, it, it's not like, like in our culture, it's not like we're going to turn on uh, the news channel, right? And it's going to be like, Trump demands circumcision for all people. And it's just not, you know, it's like, what? I don't know what, what's going on. I don't understand why they're arguing about it, why it's such a big deal. Get circumcised, don't get circumcised. It doesn't matter. But that's our culture, right? Now, now, if I started talking about race relations, everyone would have their defenses kick in, right? If I started talking about race relations right now, everyone have their own opinions, right, their own thoughts. Some people might walk out this room. Some people might shout amen. It doesn't matter. Everyone has this, this uh, it's kind of like a hot button controversy, right, for, for us because in the history of our country, race is deeply significant, right? We can all agree at least on that much. And because of that significance, because of the weight it has throughout all of America's history, we bring it up, there's going to be issues. There's going to be people that disagree. Circumcision was like that for the Jews, right? It was deeply embedded in their culture, which is why all throughout the New Testament, it keeps getting brought up, just like in this council with all the apostles and the elders. But then Peter stands up, and Peter says, look, guys, we know what happened with Cornelius, God saved Cornelius, and he was a Gentile. And not one time did he demand circumcision on that household. And God is blessing that. I mean, those people probably knew who Cornelius was. They were probably his friends. And then he ends, Peter ends with this. Look, we tried to carry the weight, the burden of this law, and we couldn't do it. This is why Jesus came. Why in the world are we going to pick that burden back up and try to lay it on our Gentile brothers? if we couldn't carry it ourselves. And everyone was silent because they knew that Peter had spoken the truth. And at that moment, at that council in Jerusalem, circumcision was taken off the table. It was no longer a thing. It had been removed and replaced by something much greater. Now, after that, this council had written a letter to all the Gentile churches saying, look, we want to encourage you. We want you to be blessed. We know God's working in you. We're just going to ask for a few things for the sake of your Jewish brothers. Don't eat meat with blood in it. Don't eat meat with, uh, from an animal that's been strangled or food that's been devoted to, to idols. And don't commit sexual immorality. That's it. And the reason is because if you do those things, your Jewish brother who you're fellowshipping with is going to stumble. You're going to put an obstacle in the way. So it's kind of a concession, right? Hey, don't worry about circumcision. That's off the table. There's a few other things for the sake of the fellowship. So they're kind of meeting in the middle. So Judas and Silas, Paul and Barnabas, they go to their first stop, Antioch, and they have this letter in hand, and they're going to this uh, Antioch, which is full of Gentiles, and they read this letter to the whole congregation, and everyone rejoices. They're very encouraged by the letter, and they love it, and they, they praise God for it, right? And then Paul and Barnabas continue their journey from there, and that's where we're going to pick up. That's the recap. Before I jump into scripture, let's pray. God, you're an amazing God, and I want to give you praise right now in this moment. I want uh, you to work on the hearts of every single person in this room. It doesn't matter if they're a newborn baby or the oldest person, but that you are a God who works miracles in each and every one of his children. And I want you to open our eyes today to your truth. Let us focus on your word, remove distractions as they come, and let us listen to you and be led by you and by your spirit. Thank you for your word, Lord, to giving us a light 
to be, to, be, uh, to be ingrained into who we are as a people, Lord, so we don't walk blindly. We love you. And all these things, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're in Acts chapter 15, verse 36. We're going to read all the way to the Acts chapter 16, verse 5. And this is what we're going to do. I, didn't, I totally forgot to do this last time, and I'm kicking myself. But what we are going to do is we're going to stand up, and we're going to read God's word together. So if you could, let's stand. And the reason we do this, this is a liturgy. This is a common practice we have established here at Redemption Alhambra to show that the reading of this book is unlike the reading of any other book because these are the very words of God. Now, I'm going to kind of flip the script here. So I'm going to skip over the end of Acts chapter 15. And what we're going to read together right now is the start of Acts chapter 16. So I'm going to read it, and you just listen along. So I'm going to start in Acts 16. Verse 1, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. That's that letter we were talking about. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. This is God's word. You may be seated. There's one point, one uh, a small statement in that passage we just read that sticks out to me the most, and that's verse 3. I'll read it one more time for you. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, right? So he's on mission. He wants Timothy with him. And then it says this. This is the, the strange part. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. That's, that's so odd because they just came from Jerusalem where they had taken circumcision off the table. And now Paul is circumcising Timothy for the Jews in those places why did he do that? Why did he do that? Now, Paul is adamantly opposed to any kind of gospel that's preached about salvation that's anything other than a free gift and a grace from Jesus Christ. But what the Jews were saying here was that, no, 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 it's not a free gift necessarily unless you're circumcised, right? And they had dealt with that. That's what the council was all about. They had removed that idea. No, 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 it's just a free gift. It's just grace. Circumcision isn't tied to salvation. And Paul was adamantly opposed to the idea that it was. In fact, there's this church in a city called Galatia. And somebody had come into this church and started preaching that salvation isn't just a grace, but you got to add circumcision to it. And this frustrated Paul. It frustrated him not just that this man came in and started preaching this false gospel, but that the church in Galatia actually started to believe them. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read this little section in Galatians. We are going to skip around a little bit in Scripture, so keep your Bible handy. I'm going to start in chapter 5 of Galatians. Remember, this whole letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia is in response to this false gospel that's been perpetuated. Verse 1, chapter 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand there firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery that being circumcision. Look, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, listen to this part, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. And on your own free time, please look up the definition of emasculation. It's not fun. Paul wasn't saying, hey, go ride on the Ferris wheel. He was saying emasculate yourself. But this is a PG uh, sermon. I'm not going to get TVMA on you and describe what that is, even though I really want to. I won't. I'm going to go, in, I'm going to say in Galatians, but I'm going to go to chapter 1 now, verse 6. Like I said, we're going to be bouncing around. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Emasculate yourself. Be accursed. Paul opposes the idea that circumcision is required for a righteous life, right? We get that when we read Galatians. He's opposed to it. So why did he circumcise Timothy? It does say for the Jews, but it doesn't give too much context after that. So it kind of leaves us hanging. So we have to dive into this idea of circumcision. We have to understand the depth. The same way that we understand the depths of race relations in this country, there's something going on much deeper than we fully understand in the context of these passages that we're talking about. Why did Paul circumcise Timothy? Let's talk about circumcision. One, it's not a practice that the Jews started. Right? A lot of people think that it, was, it actually originated in East Africa. There's all different types of ways. It is a medical procedure, and it, it, there's all kinds of different reasons a person would be circumcised. Even females can be circumcised. But for the Jewish people, there was a specific type of circumcision that only young men can have. And this is how it got started. God pulled a man named Abram out of his father's land and changed his name to Abraham and said, Look, Abraham, I'm going to give you a promise that through your offspring, I'm going to bless the nations. The whole world is going to be blessed through your children. And I'm going to seal this promise with the act of circumcision. So as long as you're circumcising your young men, your male children, then that's a token that this oath is still established. Do not forsake this oath. And it was a monument that God was setting up in their life. Now, even when I say that, even when I kind of give you that that little bit of depth, that little bit of context of what circumcision is, it's still tough to get it because it's just not relevant in our culture today. So I was trying to think, how can I 
how can I uh, explain the depths of this monument that God established in the Jewish people? So I remember the day that I proposed to my wife. It was a glorious, beautiful day. The most beautiful day on earth, in fact. Um, it was like the sixth day of creation. And I remember I had the ring, and I took her. So this place that I proposed at, it's a secret place. I'm not telling you where it was. Some of you may know, and that's the sin, by the way, because I'm, anyways. Um, so I take her to the place. I have the ring in my pocket. And just getting the ring was an adventure for a different day. And so I have the ring in my pocket, and it's nighttime. This is not like a, a place in the middle of nowhere. It's a public place. But at night, it's very, very quiet, and there's nobody else around, and there's a lot of beautiful scenery. So uh, during my high school and college years, I would go to this place to pray and to be alone uh, and to have quiet times with God um, and just to think. So because this was such a special place for me growing up, I wanted it to make it a special place for us uh, moving forward. So I take her to this place, and we're looking around, and my heart, my heart is beating out of my chest. I know what's coming. I'm short of breath, right? The ring, I feel like Frodo, and the ring is in my pocket, and it's just weighing me down to the earth. I'm like, okay, I know the moment's coming. I know it's coming. Here it is, all right? I see the place where I want to propose. The best place on earth, by the way. And I try to distract her. I point at something, and I say, hey, look at that. And she turns and looks. And so I feel very romantic, right? I pull out the ring, and I kneel down on one knee, and I lift up the ring. And, it, I mean, it looks just like a movie, just like a romantic movie. In fact, I'm pretty sure the spirit of George Clooney fell on me in that moment, and it was very dashing and romantic. So there I am, spirit of George Clooney. GC was on me. My wife turns around, not my wife, not my fiance at the time, right? She sees me there looking very dashing, and she, her face lights up. She's smiling, and the very first words that come out of her mouth when she sees me with the ring in the air towards her is, nuh-uh. Clooney's spirit left me in that moment. I was abandoned by the spirit of Clooney. And I started caving in on myself because this picturesque, romantic moment was not going the way I had thought it was going to go. And obviously, she, eventually she said, yes, we're married to this day. And I bring it up from time to time, how embarrassing that was. But even though it was silly and we had a funny moment, it's, it's a monumental moment for me as a man. Another moment was the day my oldest daughter, Isabel, was born. I remember that day. I remember the hospital room, the nurses coming in and out. My wife was handling everything like a champ, not complaining, nothing like that. And, you know, I'm just there not really sure what to do. Obviously, first, first kid, not knowing, you know, there's, there's not a whole lot of rule books. I mean, there's tons of parent books, but those don't really count. We all know those don't really mean anything. And I'm sitting there in the room. My sister shows up. Her sister shows up. They're waiting for a long time. Isabel's not coming. So they decide to walk down. They get down to the parking lot, and all of a sudden, Isabel comes. So we have to call them back. And I remember that situation was nothing like a movie. It was so surreal. It was almost like I had left my body, and I was watching this scene, and it just felt kind of like a dream. Everything was kind of moving fast and slow at the same time. And I remember the nurses took my daughter to the table to clean her up in the wrapper, and uh, I was just in awe, and I didn't know, should I be, should I be bawling right now? Should I be jumping up for joy? I just felt like this, this feeling that I can't quite describe, but this is what I know. Um, thinking about 
the birth of my daughter and all my daughters and when I proposed to my wife and when I married her is those moments were monumental for me as a man. I will never, 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 never forget those days and those moments. They have shaped me and made me who I am to this day. I'll never forget. They've been embedded into who I am as a person. Circumcision was like that for the Jews, except multiplied by thousands of years and millions of people. God had created this pillar and put it inside of who they were. And get this, this is not a superficial identity. This is not like, hey, this is just something we do. This was a seal to show that we've been elected by God himself amongst any other people on the planet. We're the chosen ones. And this seal of circumcision is proof of that. Can you, can you feel the weight of it now? Does it make sense now why, why this issue of circumcision continues to be brought up by the Jews and why it's like, hey, the Gentiles have to do it because of how important it was, how deeply embedded it was in their life and culture. But it goes even deeper. And here's the thing. There's a lot, I'm about to say a lot because we're going to dive in deep into their history, and I want you to track with me, okay? So... Thinking about their history, there's one, there's one event or time in, in the, the Israelites' history when they stopped circumcision, and that was when Moses led God's people out of Egypt. Now, initially, you think, oh, that's good, right? They stopped doing circumcision, and they're blessed because they, they got led out of slavery, but that's not the full context. See, what happened was that first generation that got led out of slavery in Egypt God let that whole group die off in the wilderness, including Moses. These people were complaining. They were committing idolatry and even Moses himself committing acts of disobedience. And God had enough. So he let them die off. And then this young man, Joshua, took over from from Moses. He took the mantle and he led God's people into the promised land. And it wasn't until then, after Moses had died, after this first generation was gone and Joshua was in charge, did he reinstate circumcision. And the moment all the men were finally circumcised again, after it had been given up under Moses' leadership, God said this to Joshua, now I will roll away the reproach of Egypt after the circumcision was reinstated. That's how important that oath was. And that would have stuck in every Jewish believer's mind, knowing how important this oath was to them. Now, another thing that the Jewish people did was they would connect everything they did to their fathers, their history. They would look at what are we doing now, what's going on in our lives now, and they would look back at their history and they would connect a lot of the dots. So what I mean by that is that they would see Christ's sacrifice on the cross as the greater and truer Passover. You know, when that destroying angel was going house to house and anybody who had the the blood of the lamb marked on their doorpost, the destroying angel would skip over and kill the firstborn child in all the other houses, the Passover. Well, they look at Jesus and say, hey, wait a second, Moses' time, that's the Passover. But what happened with Jesus is the greater and truer Passover. That was the shadow, that's the substance. All right, now the spirit falls. It fills Jews and Gentiles. People are getting saved. Wait a second. After the Passover, all God's people got led out of Egypt. They got led out of slavery. So the spirit falling 
is the greater and truer exodus. Moses' exodus, that's a shadow. But this spirit falling and filling up his people, that's the greater and truer thing. That's the substance, right? But then what happens next? They would have started, you know, they're connecting these, these dots. and saying, hey, it looks like history is repeating itself. So what happened in Moses' time? Moses chose not to have uh, circumcision go on. He chose it under his leadership, and that, in, that entire first generation died off in the wilderness. So now these Christian Jewish people are looking at the situation and say, okay, Passover happened, the great Passover happened, the great Exodus happened, but that means that we're in the wilderness. And those people who are in the wilderness with us are uncircumcised, which means we're not going to go to the promised land. Oh, no. Those people have to get circumcised. Otherwise, we're going to be like that first generation in Moses' time and die off. And they're not, we're not going to be able to go. They need to get circumcised. We're not going to repeat history here. We're not going to be, we're not going to survive the destroying angel through Passover. We're not going to uh, live through Pharaoh's army trying to attack us just to get to the wilderness and die. We're not going to do that just like our fathers did. No, these people need to get circumcised. And then Peter stands up in that council in Jerusalem and he says, brothers, you don't get it. We've already entered the promised land. In fact, the promised land has entered you. And we don't call it the promised land anymore. We call it the kingdom of God. And their minds and hearts were settled. And it got removed from the table. And this was an act of Peter and Paul and everyone who, who opposed this idea of circumcision being required for salvation. They took out this grand monument of circumcision that was embedded into who they were and replaced it with, with something greater, which was the Holy Spirit of God himself. That was the seal. Before it was cir circumcision, that was the seal of the promise, and then it became the Spirit of God, right? So what Peter was essentially saying was like, look, if you're dying of thirst, and I say, hey, take a drink of this water, right? You wouldn't grasp at the shadow of the water bottle and say, I need that shadow. You would take the water, right? And that's what Peter and Paul and all of them were trying to, to point out to these Jewish believers. And finally, they accepted it. Now, for a man like Paul to accept it, he described himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was like the epitome of what it meant to be a Jewish man. For him to see circumcision in this new light could only mean one thing about the gospel, that it was unendingly greater than the monument that God established with Abraham. There was nothing greater. Circumcision was the shadow. Christ is the substance. But I still have not answered the question, why did Paul circumcise Timothy? In light of this mountain of the gospel, knowing how he viewed circumcision, why did Timothy have to undergo that procedure? I'm not going to answer the question right now. I'm going to leave you guys hanging just a little bit longer. Okay, so go back to Acts chapter 15, and we're going to read. We're going to go back. Like I flipped the script. I started in Acts 16.1. Now we're going to go to 15, verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other 
Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So Paul and Barnabas separate based off one thing. Do we take John Mark with us or do we not? Barnabas said, yes, absolutely we take him. He's our family. He's our brother. And Paul said, look, he abandoned us on our first mission before that council in Jerusalem. When we were on that mission, he left us. Unexpectedly, he abandoned us on the mission. He might do it again. Barnabas, he cannot come with us. So I'm thinking about John Mark. If there's anybody in this story, in these passages we're reading, that I relate to, it's John Mark. I get it. You believe, but then you mess up real bad, and everyone starts second-guessing you. I think a lot of us might fall in that kind of category, right? We've all, after belief, I'm talking about after you've accepted Christ, you believe it, you're on mission, and then you just mess up. You choose to sin, right? I relate to that. John Mark was struggling. He had a struggle. What was that struggle? What was the reason he abandoned Paul and Barnabas on that first missionary journey? Remember, this was before the Jewish council. So I thought, you know, what are the reasons? Maybe he was afraid. I mean, Paul and Barnabas were doing some miraculous things. As they preached the gospel, miracles were happening, stuff John Mark has never seen in his whole life. And he might have freaked out and said, I, this is crazy. I can't, I can't take it anymore. I got to go home. Maybe he was frustrated with Paul. Barnabas was his cousin. Maybe he thought Barnabas should be the one leading the, the party, but Paul obviously took lead. He could have resented him. Both of those reasons, probably unlikely, but possible. And maybe he was just lazy. Right? I know that some of the men can feel me, right? You get home and you kick off your shoes and relax your feet. Party on. Some of you know, right? And then you get your food and it tastes so good. And you turn on your favorite TV show and you just want to relax because you work so hard all day, right? So you abandon all your fatherly and husband duties. Ouch. But I know because I've done it, right? Women, you're not off the hook. We know you get a little lazy sometimes too. It's not just the man. Oh, no, you're not supposed to amen. That was kind of a joke. <laughs> amen, brother. Serious amen. Amen and amen. Jesus said amen and amen. I'm just kidding. But we do get lazy, I mean, if we're honest, right? But most likely not. What's the context of the, of the mission that Paul and Barnabas are on? They're preaching the gospel to Gentiles who are coming to the faith. And there's no circumcision going on. Remember, this is before the council. So John Mark must have been losing his mind. What's going on? We're in the wilderness. Do you guys not see this? If they remain uncircumcised, we're not going to the promised land. So he dips out. I can't take it. After Cyprus, they sailed to a place called Pamphylia. And right then and there, John Mark's like, I got to go home. I'm going to Jerusalem. He abandons them. He leaves them. But it was because of that struggle right? I hope I made that monument heavy in your heart for circumcision so you, you can at least understand what John Mark was going through. Even if Paul and Barnabas were attempting to explain it, it just didn't click for him until they got to the council in Jerusalem, and then Peter starts talking, and John Mark goes, oh, I get it now. And he repents, and he says, you know what? I messed up. First journey, I messed up. I want to go on the second journey with Paul and Barnabas now. I'm going to make things right. But by that time, for Paul, it was too late. Look, you left us. You left us in a time of need when we needed you. We can't take you. And Barnabas said, all right, I got I to I take him. He's my family. He's my brother. He's repented. 
and I'm going to stick with him. I'm going to stick by his side. So before, there's not much scripture says about John, Mark, and Barnabas after this. It says very little. Now, the little bit it does say is positive. It does indicate that he st- they, both of them were on mission. Both of them remained uh, friends with Paul. It wasn't like they had this, this broken relationship. You know, Paul talks very positively about John Mark in his letters. Um, so those are all good signs, but the Bible keeps walking along with Paul, right? So we don't see John Mark and Barnabas after that. But just a, a little side note, I just want to go off the course just a bit and talk about John Mark and how I was encouraged because what happened was Barnabas took John Mark back to Cyprus. Now, Cyprus had double the significance for John Mark. One, it was the place of his birth. It's not where he lived at the time, but it was where he was born. So Barnabas is reminding him of his roots, right? That's one thing. The second thing is that somewhere in Cyprus, these thoughts of abandoning Paul and Barnabas started to form, started to take root. So that when they left Cyprus and right when they arrived at Pamphylia, John Mark left. So Barnabas is figuring, you know, somewhere here, John Mark started to have these roots of sin. So this is what I'm going to do. As his brother, as his cousin, I'm going to take him back to this place where the roots of sin took place to say that God is a redeeming God and we're going to do this the right way now. And he took him to Cyprus and gave John Mark a second chance after he repented. And because I relate so much to John Mark, I know what it's like to have to go back to those ground zero places and to have Barnabas's backing me up and praying for me and encouraging me. I'm telling you now that if you've walked away from the mission, like many of us do, even after faith, that there are Barnabases who will encourage you and love you in this room right now. But don't Don't create another excuse not to jump back on mission out of fear or embarrassment. Know that God loves you and God's calling you back to his mission, back to repentance, back to himself. And that you have brothers and sisters who will encourage you the way Barnabas did with John Mark. And the only point I want to make before I move on is you cannot separate mission from faith, which is what John Mark attempted to do. So Paul took Silas and he carried on. This is where we're going to tie things together. I said a lot of things, right? We talked about two different passages, which honestly could be two different sermons, and I want to connect them all. So what Paul was doing with Timothy when he said, you're uncircumcised, so we're going to circumcise you, and what Paul did with John Mark when he said no to Barnabas, he's not coming with us, is essentially the same exact thing. He was removing any hindrance to the gospel being preached to the lost, for Timothy, he's looking at him as uncircumcised. Paul knows, I'm going to preach the gospel to the Jews. And if they know you're uncircumcised, even though we both know there's no value to circumcision, but because they do, it's a block between us preaching the gospel to them. Timothy, are you on board with this? Timothy's gangster as ever. He's down for the gospel. He says, let's do it. We got to preach to the Jews. And then with John Mark, he's like, look, you've abandoned me once. I don't know if you're going to do it again. I love you. You're my brother. I believe repentance is true in you, but I cannot risk it because you're a potential hindrance to the preaching to the Gentiles. John Mark, I'm sorry you cannot come with me. Paul was down for the gospel. Nothing mattered more to him. If it meant hurting the feelings of his greatest friend, Barnabas, then so be it. Because he wanted to remove all hindrances. Man, that's a radical life that I can't imagine. But Paul was devoted to what he considered paramount, nothing greater than the gospel. So how does this apply in our own life? Two questions. One is, are we on mission? 
are we on mission? The mission is to preach the gospel, right? To live it out and to preach it. Are we on mission? You got to wrestle with that. I can't answer that question for you. You all have to examine your own lives. The second question, if you are on mission, whether perfectly or imperfectly, obviously imperfectly as we all are, what hindrances do you have to preaching the gospel? Paul had to tell his best friend, I'm sorry, if we have to split ways right now, I can't put a hindrance in front of the gospel. I can't do it, Barnabas. And they left. Man, that must have been a hard decision. We read right past it, don't think much of it. But they were the greatest of friends for years, doing ministry work for years. And they had to go their separate ways because Paul just could not risk putting an obstacle in front of the gospel. What hindrances do you have? Let me read another thing from Paul. This is in Corinthians, okay? If you don't want to flip there, that's fine. You can write it down, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is kind of summarizing my whole sermon. I'm going to start in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And sums it up perfectly actually before that statement in verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have made, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Let me read that part again because that summarizes the point I want to make for my entire sermon connecting what Paul did with Timothy and what he did with John Mark. This is it. This is what he was doing. We endure anything. Separation from our our good friends so that I won't put an obstacle. Anything. Getting circumcision done, even though it means nothing and I don't count it as righteousness in any way, shape, or form, we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And why? Because Paul was so ferociously devoted to the gospel that he would allow nothing to hinder his preaching the message that God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to bear the weight and penalty of our sins so that all of us, everyone in this room, has an opportunity to be reconciled with God and be on his mission. And if you want to know Am I really about this? Do I really have faith in God? Answer the question, are you on mission? That's how you know. So what is the gospel? And here's where I want to end. Scripture says, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance. First importance. That Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And later, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, 
much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? This is what Christ died for, for you and I, to reconcile people in all things back to his father, back to God. And scripture makes it abundantly clear that our life is invaluable. That he loves us and he's calling us to mission. And that's a sign of true faith. If you want to know, you you can't just go through a life and say, it's just me and God. It's just me and God because that's not the case. That's not what scripture teaches. It's in fellowship, on mission, preaching his gospel, what we know. And he's given us all this beautiful, wonderful, amazing mission to be on. And I know it's hard. There are so many obstacles in the way, so many obstacles. Everything in our life can become an obstacle if we're not careful. Our relationships, our friendships, our jobs, all those things which are good things. But we can make them, we can make them hindrances to preaching the gospel. And we have to ask ourselves, individually and as a family, what hindrances are there? I believe that Redemption Alhambra is on mission. I think it's clear as day. But we still got to wrestle with it. That's the only way we grow. I have to ask myself, and I asked myself as I studied, and I challenge you now to let the gospel be Mount Everest in your soul. Let it be embedded in you the way that circumcision was embedded in the mind of the Jewish believers. Let the gospel be that for you. Be on mission today. Don't waste your life. Be on mission today. There's nothing greater than the gospel of Christ. Nothing. It's our only hope for salvation. It's the only way to be reconciled back to God. So be reconciled today. Repent if you must. Give praise. But this is our mission, and we give God glory for it. God, you are amazing. And we lift up your name because you are holy and true And you provided a way for us lost sinners to be reconciled back to you within your plan to bring all of creation under your feet again, giving praise and glory to you, Lord, which is what we do today in this room now. We're adding to the praises of the angels themselves by lifting up your name. There is no one greater than you, and there is no mission. There's no other plan on this planet that we could align ourselves with, align our interests with, than the gospel and preaching it. And so we align ourselves with your son, Jesus, today, who called us to something greater than whatever plan we could have come up with in our own lives. Spirit, you're amazing and fill us. We devote our lives to to you. We devote our families to you. Everything we want, we put it at your feet. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much. All these things, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.